Thank you, Stacy. And I just want to say, to, to commend uh, Stacy before all of us, she has labored um, long and well for not just our children, but for us. And uh, we're grateful, Stacy, for your serving us as our sister. So. Indeed, let's lean in together. <clears throat> if you would, open your Bibles with me. As Stacy said, this is, we sort of took a three-week hiatus from a series. Next week, we'll be starting the patriarch narratives of Genesis, starting in Genesis 12 and finishing to the end of that book. Uh, but uh, this week, we're finishing up kind of a, a topical series on really what does it look like for us to do life together well, not just post-COVID, but period, as Christians. And we might need a little bit of a, of a, of a boost in the arm, so to speak, um, coming out of COVID, but it's always relevant for us to reflect on these things. So with that said, uh, I'll be starting in chapter 5, verse 25. The text will also be on the screen uh, for your convenience, but read along with me from 525 through 6:10. Paul writes, "If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. One who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you instruct us so gently and kindly. We ask that you instruct us now and help me, Lord, serve your people well that we might hear clearly, not from me, but from you, what you would have us to hear this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. <clears throat> this week, uh, one on my news feed was a study that was done uh, regarding how we view our own goodness and others' goodness. It was sort of a fascinating study. It was small. I think it was like only 2,000 participants, but revealing of the 2,000, 81% believe that the human race was fundamentally good. Interestingly, millennials less so than anyone else. Uh, I don't know what that means. But um, of, 
So 81% thought the human race was fundamentally good. 75%, unsurprisingly, thought they were fundamentally good. But the most striking statistic to me was that nearly half went much further than that. 46% said they're the best person they know. Um, so, uh, you know, there's books written on this, the age of narcissism, right? Um, but you know what's so funny is it sounds contradictory, but the, but the other questions that were asked seem to contradict this, but they don't. 72% admitted that they judge others around them. They judge them for their faults, their, their failings, their shortcomings. But 61% admitted that they live in a kind of fear that they're constantly being judged by those around them. And so we see this on full display, don't we, on social media. We see the self-promotion and the self-marketing, uh, the, the, the picture-perfect time with family or dessert with our date, you know, by the river, uh, where, where we are cultivating and curating an image. And it's exhausting work because we want to be seen as better. And we feel this constant pressure to compare and measure ourselves to each other. We use the community, in other words, to serve me. I can compare and contrast myself to the community and those around me to measure my superiority. And so what Paul says here in verse 25, he says, do not become conceited. Conceited is, I think I'm the best person I know. But provoking one another, and we can provoke each other by constantly displaying our awesomeness or pointing our finger at others' lack of awesomeness, where they fail, where they flop. This is why we're a culture that's very, very nice because it's, it's good to be nice. It looks good to be nice. But we're merciless. We're not only a culture of self-promotion, but a cancel culture. Because we believe at root... But if I were to show you mercy, well, you wouldn't show me any mercy. If you were to know my faults, my weaknesses, which I dare not put on social media, I would be canceled. And so it's a world that's brutal, right? Constant marketing, constant self-promotion, constant measuring of ourselves off one another. But Paul points us to a very different way of life. And Paul tells us in our passage this morning that our goodness is not found in how we compare to others. Our goodness is not found in how we compare to others, but in how we serve others. Our goodness is found in how we serve others, not whether we are better, however we measure that, than others. And Paul here specifically saying in verse 25, this weird fragility of the ego, right? Like he says, he says there in chapter 5, verse 25, he says, let us not be conceited, provoking one another, but then also envying one another. We're very sensitive to how we're going to be perceived and that others seem better than us. So we're both conceited and insecure. Those things always go hand in hand. Narcissist have incredibly fragile egos. And so when narcissistic culture is always showing off how great it is, but secretly afraid 
that it will be found wanting. Paul says, rather than living that kind of life, becoming conceited, provoking one another by displaying how great you are or picking at each other's weaknesses and envying one another, rather, he says, if in, even if anyone is caught in any kind of sin, rather than picking at it and, and perhaps distancing yourself, canceling it, he says, move toward them and restore them. Right? Paul's antidote to our compare and despair social game is to see others in their neediness, in their failings, even their own sinfulness, and not judge them, ridicule them, distance ourselves from them, but enter into what Wayne so vividly described in his sermon a couple of weeks ago as the bloody unity of the body. To roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty and bear one another's burdens. That if there's a summary command here of all the commands Paul gives, it's this one. Bear one another's burdens. Engage to restore in gentleness and to reconcile and to strengthen what is weak. Rather than using it as a prop to highlight my superiority or your inferiority. And this is a striking command Paul gives here to bear a burden because he's just told us, in fact, if you read Galatians, the whole book can be summarized in this sentence. Don't be burdened with a yoke of slavery anymore. Look what he says in chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, in your freedom. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You see, these Judaizers from Jerusalem had come to the Galatian churches claiming to be from the apostles and said, Paul only preached half a gospel. You must take upon yourselves the yoke of Moses. You must take on all these regulations and circumcision and dietary laws. You must fulfill the law. And Paul here is arguing throughout the whole letter, you are free. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The word he uses here is literally a yoke of servitude. So it's striking when Paul says this in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Sounds familiar. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And for Paul, life in the flesh is a life of self-promotion. A life of not just self-indulgence, but constant working to demonstrate my awesomeness to everyone around me. It's an exhausting religious task. And it's a yoke of slavery. <laughs> but Paul says, don't do that as an opportunity for the flesh, as they were doing in Galatia. By taking on the yoke of Moses and receiving the sign of circumcision in the flesh, they were putting off how awesome, how superior, how morally better, how more spiritual they are than the rest of you. So he says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve. And there's the same root word as, do not take a yoke of servitude, but serve through love. Serve one another. It reminds me of what the Apostle Peter writes. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, rather be servants or slaves of God. You're liberated to serve. And he goes on to say this. I stopped kind of mid-sentence there. 
But he goes on to say, you who want to be under the law again, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love. And he quotes from Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul here understands the yoke of Jesus well. Love is the fulfillment of the law. But if you bite and devour one another, which is what they were doing, they were constantly comparing and contrasting themselves to one another, snipping at each other. Why? They're not doing it right. We're doing it right, right? He says you will consume yourselves. It'll be self-cannibalizing community. And we've seen that. Churches eat themselves. And it's grievous and horrific. Because they're playing this game, this game of the flesh, self-promotion. Look how good I am. And by contrast, how bad you are. But this service of love we're called to is not a yoke of slavery. We don't serve because we're guilted to serve. Because we have to serve. We serve because our hearts have been set free. We have been liberated to love well. And so we fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens then. Shoulder the burden with them. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Because what did Christ do? The Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. He came and bore our burdens. Paul gives a very similar command in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 15, look at what Paul writes. He says, we who are strong now, and there's a, there's a temporal kind of dimension to this that's not reflected in the translation. We who are strong, maybe in the moment, have an obligation to those who are currently failing, who are weak. Sometimes you're strong, and you have to bear with the failings of the weak. Sometimes you're the weak one who's failing. And in a culture that fears failure above everything else, it's hard to embrace this, but it's so important that we do. We often fail. We are often weak. I am often so weak. And I need the strong to bear with my failings. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, not pleasing ourselves, but seek to build them up. For Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Psalm 69, the psalm that was most used to reflect on the crucifixion of Christ. He bore our burdens that were not His to bear. He entered into the bloody mess of your life and my life and took our sin and its consequences upon His own shoulders. Yes, Jesus calls you to bear a yoke, but the first yoke He took was the crossbeam of our sins for us. And in speaking of how Christ bears our sins, Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Now, to be honest with you, we don't do this well. Riverside doesn't do this well. Southern Christianity doesn't do this well. We're just not good at calling one another up to a higher obedience. Why is that? Well, I suspect two reasons. One, the text gives us. Look at verse 3 
after following up on this bearing with one another, even sin, bearing with one another's burdens. Four, verse three. Four, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. What does that have to do with bearing one of those burdens? Oftentimes, we don't engage in helping people who've made a mess of things, who are people who are weak, who maybe have made a foolish decision, because we think we're better than them. We're conceited, like Paul says in verse 26. We've become conceited. And so we think we're something that we're not. And we're not willing to bear the burdens of this foolish Christian who made this dumb decision or this foolish individual who's failing in this area and it's like the 27th time and I can't keep bearing with you. You've got to get it together, right? But that's not like Jesus and it's not what we're called to do. So there's a self-importance that keeps us from engaging in the bloody mess of community. We're just like, ugh, they made their bed, they got to sleep in it. Like, I don't want to get in that thing. <laughs> you know, I do not want to touch that mess. Thank God that was not Jesus' attitude towards us, who entered into our filthy mess and bore our heaviest burdens. So we're called to do the same, not to think too highly of ourselves. And this was Christ who did not consider equality with God something to grasp onto, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave for us. There is, though, a little caveat in verse 1. Restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And I think that's important because so often in our conceitedness, we can be harsh. We can be harsh. It's you who are spiritual. And he's just said earlier in chapter 5, to be spiritual is to keep in step with the Spirit, one of the fruits of which is gentleness. So we're to engage in gentleness as we have these difficult conversations and not out of a conceitedness or a sense of superiority. In fact, Jesus gives us hard work to do before we talk to a brother or sister about sin. Right? Before you go to and deal with the splinter in your sister's eye, Worry about first the log that's in your own. And so we have to do what Paul Miller calls beam research. We have to self-examine and say, where's sin in my life that I'm bringing to this conversation? So we come filled with the Spirit, humble and gentle, because you just received fresh mercy for your sins. So you're all the quicker to offer it, aren't, aren't we? We come ready to maybe even hear a rebuke when I point out their sin for them to point out mine. And I'm prepared for it. Yeah, you're right. I am a sinner. Thank God for grace. Right? Let's repent together. But I think there's another reason why we Southern Christians are terrible at this command. And I think it's, it goes back to verse 26. That fragile ego between self-conceit, I'm better than you, and envy, I'm, I'm afraid you're better than me. That fills us. We are a people of performance, us Southerners, and no more so than in the area of religion. We put on a show, don't we? We work really hard to impress others. I have it all together. I'm a good Christian man. 
maybe we think we can just work hard enough at the image, we can persuade you to, to believe it too, and maybe we'll even persuade ourselves. And here's the problem with that kind of propped up image that we're projecting. It's fragile facade. And one little scratch at it can tear it down, come crashing down in a moment. So, if I feel that fragile with my facade, I'm not going to come poking around yours. Right? What if you poke back? So we let sleeping dogs lie. And we just put up with each other's sins. We just sort of, oh, I think he drinks too much. I haven't said anything because it's going to be awkward. Or... I think she's really seemed to have lost any real connection with community. But I don't want to have that conversation. We are called to enter into the mess, to bear one another's burdens, and to restore one another in a spirit of gentleness. But there is a warning. Keep watch on yourself, Paul says at the last, the last half of verse 1, lest you too fall into temptation. And I think it's not just the temptation of whatever sin has caught up our friend, our brother, our sister, our family member. It's whenever you engage these difficult conversations, there are temptations, oh plenty, for you to sin, even as you seek to do the right thing. Right? As you engage in gently even correcting someone, very quickly their response can trigger something in you. And your response is to sin back. Right? So there's a warning here. This warning is especially apropos for those of us who are elders, those of us who lead small groups or coaches, those who lead ministry teams like deacons, because oftentimes we have the task of restoring sinners. And so often we sin in the good work of restoring sinners. What happens? Well, verse 3 happens. But if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, not in the sinner that's being restored. It's so easy in the course of trying to restore someone who's maybe made a big mess of things, and they're resistant, and they're pushing back, and they're questioning your motives to get defensive. And say, look, trust me, I'm, I'm godly, okay? I'm more spiritual than you. Listen to me. <laughs> What's just happened? I've become conceited, and I begin to measure my goodness over and against your lack of it. And I have fallen into sin. And I say that not hypothetically. I say that as one who has multiple times fallen into sin while trying to restore others with impatience, a lack of gentleness. So be careful, especially you who lead, that you do not fall into that temptation. As Paul says to the Romans, by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you that you ought not to think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment. When half the population says they're better than everyone else they know, you can be sure that's not sober judgment. It just doesn't add up, right? We need to have sober judgment in these things. And what Paul says is that we are to take ownership for what we do, not what others do, or compare ourselves to what others do. Our own responsibilities, God's placed us with the calling He's given us, 
Each one of us have a unique calling and the responsibilities he's uniquely placed on our plates and the unique gifting that he's given you. And where you are in your maturity in Christ, all of that is on you. And not in comparison to others. On earth we stand together and we serve together, but at the judgment seat, all of us will stand alone. Look what he says in verse 5. For each will have to bear his own load. And here's the playful paradox of Galatians 6. Bear one another's burdens, for you'll each bear your own load. Whether we are spiritual ones restoring others, we're the instructors who instruct others, or those who are being restored and receiving instruction, we all of us will be weighed according to our own works. Look what, look what he goes on to say in verse 6 and following. Read with me, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, his own self-promotion, his own image, will from the flesh reap corruption. As the prophet said, if you sow wind, which is what image is, you will reap a whirlwind, right? But to the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So there's both warning here and great promise. Whether, we're the, whether again, we're the instructors, or those receiving, wherever we are we, are, we are called to sow, and we will reap what we sow. We will bear our own load before God. This word is actually used earlier in chapter 5, just to give you an illustration from chapter 5, verse 10. Look what Paul writes. He says to these Galatians who are being stirred up by these false teachers, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than what Paul's been presenting of the gospel. Now, to the one, the ringleader, who's troubling you, he will bear the penalty, whoever he is. It's the same word. He will bear his own load, his own consequences. And this is actually very liberating for us as we seek to do the work of bearing each other's burdens and restoring others from sin. Sometimes it doesn't go well. Sometimes it is painful. Sometimes it seems, in the moment, fruitless. But that burden is not on us. What my brother or sister does as I pour into them is not my responsibility. That's theirs. And I don't know about you, but that very much liberates me. As I pour into others or I seek to gently restore them and they just refuse it or push it back in my face, I don't have to control the outcome. I can say, well, they will bear their own, their, this, the consequences of their own decisions. And that's freeing. That frees me to serve more liberally, more generously, because I don't have to control the, 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 the outcome. I don't have to control what comes out of it. I can just control the sowing part, what I sow into it. What you sow, you will reap. It is both a warning and a great promise. I love how Paul puts it to the Corinthians. He says, this is the point. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So if you pour into people's lives generously, you will reap generously. 
We will all bear our own loads before God, but we will bear them well then on that day if we bear one another's burdens well today. We will bear our own load well that day if we bear one another's burdens well today. So, He goes on to say in verses 9 and 10, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, the same word for season in verse 9, as as it's the season for sowing, let us do good to everyone, and especially to the household of faith. We are to be liberally sowing, generous with doing good, to all those around us because your efforts are not wasted. No matter what those consequences might be for the lives of other people, they will bear their load. You, however, will reap what you sow. Whatever comes of that seed, wherever it grows, whatever they do with it, you will reap harvest. So, so generously, Riverside. So in the lives of others, liberally, freely, with a heart set free to love. One of the ways we do that, especially the household of faith, is by serving the community of the church. This is a high priority. Paul prioritizes how we serve the local congregation. He says serve all, but especially the church, especially the household of God. When you join a local church, one of the things you're implicitly doing is saying, I'm in to not only be served, but to serve. I'm here to serve. And in our membership covenant, we make this implicit truth explicit. This is how we say it in the membership covenant. Do you promise to participate in and support the life, worship, and work of the church to the best of your ability? In other words, are you willing to pour in, to put your shoulder to the plow and pull with us? To sow seed with us, to sow seed in the lives of others with us and among us. We spell this out in the bylaws with these words. To steward the resources God has given each member includes their time, so we serve with our time, our talents, that includes our spiritual gifts, you know, that God's given us, and our treasures, our finances. Time, talents, and treasures. We invest in the community, all people, but especially the local church as the household of God. Notice verse 6, we, uh, he says that those Those who receive instruction should share all good things with those who give the instruction. All good things certainly includes financial, but other things as well. Other ways to bless and encourage those who labor among us in the ministry of the Word and in shepherding. But it's not just the leaders that we are to serve or we're to bear burdens with, to lift them up as they labor among us, but it's the whole community. The whole church is to serve one another, to bear one another's burdens together. And as Riverside, we are one church of many small groups. And so the expectation of Riverside is, I think, reasonably that if you're a member, you not only serve the one church, which is to say on Sunday morning, I'm going to play a role. You know, once a month, I'm going to serve with hospitality or serve on the AV team or serve in children's discipleship or I'm going to put out cones or I'm just going to be here to greet people and welcome them and love people. But also that we serve our small groups 
And maybe that's leading a small group. Maybe it's hosting a small group. Maybe that's just being a very active member to pursue people, not only in the meeting, but throughout the week, to serve your small group leader and honor them. Maybe that's as a coach. Some of you are coaches. We should serve the whole community of the church family. And that's expected, I think, for every member as what Paul spells out here, to bear one another's burdens, to plow together. Now, of course, as we talked about last week, there are seasons for rest. And recently, even while we've been calling people to step up and serve, a few faithful souls who have been serving this whole time have been exhausted and needed to step back. Not only is that acceptable, that's welcomed. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and His yoke gives rest to souls. And there's times for us to rest. And you might be in a season where you're like, James, during COVID, I didn't take a break. I've been serving every week, every two weeks. I've been, you know, yes, that's great. We want you to take a break, right? Like that's critical for not only your own soul, but for us. It opens up opportunities for others to serve. And it gives you renewed energy for future service. So this is very important rest. In fact, as I shared last week, uh, Landon and his family, Laura, Laura Jones and their children will be taking a sabbatical in June. Kind of June through August, they will be on a three-month sabbatical. And um, we want to encourage uh, the family to give. We, now, Riverside was so faithful to give to the Wilsons, I was blown away. I think the Wilsons received their financial goal like within a week. It was crazy amount of generosity. And so we're, I'm so grateful for how not just Riverside, but so many other churches partnering with them just poured out. And I want to encourage us to consider how we might generously give to Landon and Laura to enable them to enjoy this sabbatical. It'll be an opportunity for them family to have some time together and for them as husband and wife to get some time together. And so I want to encourage you to give. Our goal is to raise $8,000 to enable them to do those two things well. Uh, I think uh, Landon has, has labored among us these last eight years faithfully. He's instructed us in the Word. And it's, our, it's now our opportunity to share all good things with Landon and Laura in this particular way. But the reality is this need for rest presses home a point Paul addresses here that we get tired. That we get discouraged. Look again at verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For due season we'll reap if we do not give up. If we do not lose heart. It's easy in the, in the, in the task of, of serving others, of bearing one another's burdens, of doing good to all, but especially to the household of faith. It's easy to just lose heart. To be discouraged. I mean, yes, there's ministry burnout. That's why we offer a summer break for small group leaders. We encourage small group leaders to take a break. We want you to rest. Even if your group still meets, that's great. You don't have to lead it. Um, But it's just spiritually can be discouraging. You know, some of you serve very faithfully and it's it's almost uh, behind the scenes and most people never see it. And that can be very discouraging to serve and just not be seen. I want to commend you. The Heavenly Father sees you. And He sees all the good work you've done. And as Hebrews says, He's not so unjust as to forget your labor of love. You will be rewarded 
for your work. And you know, ministry is just hard when we serve each other. I mean, we talked about having those hard conversations of coming to someone and calling them up to a higher uh, spiritual zeal and, and, and running after Christ more diligently. Having those conversations can often seem like more trouble than they're worth, don't they? No matter, even if we come with a spirit of gentleness and we've done our heart work and we're ready, right? It can still go badly. And when that happens, what are we? We're discouraged. We want to give up. But the call here is to persevere in doing that good work, that hard, bloody work of life together. And that means not just serving, but saying, hey, I need help, I'm needy, I'm weak. Can someone help me? How do we persevere? Well, the promise that Paul gives here, let's not grow weary, for in due season, we will reap. You will reap. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Ever. Never is it wasted. The seed that you sow, all of it will come back to you by God's sovereign blessing. You are not wasting your time. You're not wasting your energy when it seems like that person blew you off or they didn't even notice the way that you served them. You are not wasting your time. You will reap a harvest if you do not give up. And so Paul says something quite similar earlier in chapter 5. It's on the screen. Paul says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait. And if we wait for it eagerly, it's because we fully expect it. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, this harvest of righteousness to come. For in Christ Jesus, not circumcision, uncircumcision, only faith working through love counts. Now hear that. Only faith working through love counts. Not your image maintenance or projection of having it all together. None of that counts squat before God. But when you, through faith in Christ, work in love for others, that not only does it count, it always counts. Always and it will always be rewarded. So brothers and sisters, you can labor in confidence that the seed you sow will be fruitful. It will be honored by your Father. And you will bear your own load. And that load will be a rich harvest. We will reap a harvest as we sow with the Savior. The sower Himself in the kingdom parables, Jesus is the sower of the good seed. And you and I have been yoked to Him. So as we sow seed with Him, guess what that means? We will reap His harvest with Him. And that will be quite a harvest. So let's pray as we prepare our hearts to continue in worship. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You give us a sure word a sure promise that as we sow good works, good words, they're never wasted. Even if they land on deaf ears, Lord, You honor the work. And we will with Christ reap a rich harvest. Lord, set our minds and 
our mind's eye on that harvest to come.